All right, well, thanks, Isaiah. Great to hear so much gospel in that prayer, wasn't it? It's uh, really uh, good to be back. So thankful to uh, spend some time with you. We had a wonderful uh, time while we were in South Africa, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. And I can't wait to hear about the other trip that went out to Czech Republic from the Furcos. It's going to be uh, really nice. I think maybe in a couple weeks we're going to have a missions update uh, Sunday. I'm really, I know, grateful for the team that went uh, with us. It felt a little like I got to take some of my American family to meet some of my African family. And uh, it was really, and some of our German family as well, because we had a, a church from Germany that we know that was working alongside of us. And so it was really a, a sweet time, a, a privilege for sure. And of course, I'm also really excited about the privilege we have now to get back into God's word together. And, you know, for most of this year, we've been studying the gospel of, of Luke, and that's where we've been focusing. And I am thankful for Isaiah the past couple weeks uh, taking us to the book of James, and he just keeps plugging away at James, and we'll get through it. But for the most part, we've been studying the gospel of Luke, and we've come to a section in Luke, actually, uh, in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus chooses the apostles. So Jesus chooses his apostles. And you know a little, I'm sure, about the apostles. These are some of the most important men in the history of the church. And yet, I thought, you know, we could do a, something a little different uh, and take this opportunity to talk about uh, more than just the apostles. So uh, this is going to be a section in Luke about Jesus and the apostles uh, that fits a certain way into his gospel, and we're going to get to that. But I want us to think about more than just the apostles. I want us to step back the next couple weeks and think about leadership in the church uh, in general. So we're going to look at some of what the Bible teaches about leadership in the church. We're going to do a little series. We're not just going to look at Luke uh, chapter 6. We're going to look at a number of passages. And uh, you could call this series, I guess, Understanding Church Leadership. What does the Bible teach about church leadership? And so next week, we're going to get into uh, Luke chapter 6 and talk about the apostles specifically this foundational role, and then we'll go to another passage of scripture and talk about elders, and then we'll even talk about uh, deacons. It's going to take us a little while. But today, if you haven't already, uh, take your Bible and open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I thought I could give you a little introduction. Why are we talking about leadership at all? Uh, We're going to get to the what, uh, but First, I want to talk about the why, because this is something that I'm going to talk about a lot. Leadership, 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 leadership. If I'm around the next 30 years, Lord willing, (laughs) if God lets me make it that long, uh, leadership. And uh, not just because I think leadership is such an interesting subject or uh, because being a church that has a lot of leaders is easy, uh, but actually uh, because I really love the local church. I love being part of the local church. I believe in it. In fact, let me just start there as a kind of introduction, because uh, the local church is really something special. Uh, It's hard. It's sometimes sad. uh, But it's really special. And I was reminded of how special the local church is, uh, again, just this last trip to South Africa. This was the first time I've been to South Africa uh, since we moved a year and a half ago, and it was uh, such a a joy to be there with our church, with that church, with the church from Germany, and uh, 
I guess especially it was such a joy to see the church there uh, doing so well. It's like uh, what we were dreaming and praying would happen, uh, happened, was happening. And so by the end of the week, uh, when I first got there, I was a little uh, homesick for Africa, actually, in terms of, wow, that was a, a really big move that we made. It, it hit me. And uh, yet by the end of the week, I uh, was really, really ready to get back and get working here at Cornerstone, because this is where God has placed us, and God has given us a lot of opportunities as a church, as a local church. And uh, of course, I'm thankful uh, for what God's done in this church over the years, but I'm really, really excited about what he's going to do. I kind of have big dreams for this church. And hopefully, you know, we have big dreams for the church. We are wanting the best for God's church everywhere. But since we've been placed in this spot in Orange County, uh, California, Fullerton, we have big dreams for this particular local church. I know, of course, that uh, God does not need us. God does not need Cornerstone Bible Church. So uh, when I say I have big dreams for Cornerstone Bible Church, and as we uh, talk about what we want to accomplish, I don't want us to be thinking or talking like our particular local church is the key to God's great plan because it is not. It is so not. God has got a million things that he is doing all around the world through all kinds of biblical churches, which is awesome. It's, it's good news, and it's such a privilege to be able to hear what God is doing in other places. We should get excited about that. I know I was uh, able to visit another church last week, and I was so thankful for the way that God had gifted that pastor and to see a little of what God is doing in that church. And we have a lot of hope about what God is doing and going to do through the church in general, because Jesus has promised that he's going to build his church. And that is true, even if Cornerstone Bible Church somehow went out of existence, if we were just wiped off the planet and there's still no, there's no more CBC, God's still going to get done exactly what he wants to get done, which I think is good news, (laughs) great news, that this is not all dependent on us. And yet, while that's true, wonderfully, beautifully true, it's also true that God still uses us. And this is where I start getting excited, because I know while he's not up in heaven dependent on us, he still uses us as part of his great plan. God uses local churches like Cornerstone Bible Church to do something really remarkable in this world right now and to make real advances for the good of people and the cause of Christ. And so we're not just surviving here. I mean, surviving is fine, but the actual goal is bigger. We want to partner together to maximize the amount of glory we generate For God, God has brought us back from Africa, and he's actually brought you from all over together at this moment in this city for a reason, to to do something, to accomplish something. We've been brought together as a local church for a purpose, and we want to be used by God to make an impact on our city, on our country, on our continent, and on our world, an impact that will be talked about millions of years from now even billions, into eternity. And today, I want to talk with you a little bit about how. How how does that happen? How do we become that kind of church? Because truthfully, 
it seems kind of impossible sometimes. I know we're Americans and we like to be confident and think that we can do anything, but that sounds impossible sometimes because uh, for one thing, if you just step back and look at the world in which we're living, it's clearly a bad place. And it uh, sometimes seems like it's getting better, worse. Like uh, for me, watching the way people reacted after Roe versus Wade was overturned. It's like, wow, what is going on? The world is bad, and the, the gospel message that we're all about is not popular, obviously. This is, this is not something that people want to hear or really are interested in. It was uh, nice when we were back in Africa uh, as we went out to share the gospel and we talked with people because there was still a, at least some respect and interest in the gospel. And uh, not all the time, but sometimes it seems pretty different here. And so looking at our world, looking at our message, looking at us, of course, there's all kinds of reasons why it's going to be difficult for us to make much of an impact and why we might be tempted to just settle and be like, you know what, let's just come to church, make some money, you know, go to the beach every once in a while, and die. And yet, you know, for all the challenges we face, as we look down at 2 Timothy chapter 2, our text for today, Timothy is maybe one person who could have had even more reasons at this point for giving up. As this letter is being written, there are a number of things Timothy could have been looking at and been seriously discouraged about. Like, uh, for starters, his spiritual father's in prison. This letter that we're reading is written by the Apostle Paul. And in verse 1 of, of chapter 2, we see that Paul calls Timothy his child. And, and that's not just a word. That's the, the nature of their relationship. Timothy looked to the Apostle Paul as a mentor, and not just a mentor. He looked at the Apostle Paul as a father. In fact, you know he's not with Paul at this point. He's in Ephesus, Timothy, and Paul's in prison somewhere at Rome. I think. And the last time he saw Paul, he was really emotional, Timothy, probably because he thought he wasn't going to see him again. In verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul says, I remember your tears. And you can picture that because this is a grown man we're talking about, Timothy. He's probably in his early 40s, late 30s maybe, and yet he's crying over having to leave the apostle Paul. And probably because he knows where things are going, that, that Paul's about to leave him for good, because it's shortly after Paul writes this letter that he's executed, most likely beheaded. And so here is Timothy, and he's got to be feeling pretty lonely at this point, like things are against him, because his spiritual father is suffering and about to die, and he's in a church that is proving to be really difficult. That's part of why Paul's having to write two letters to him. There are all these false teachers going around saying crazy things, like even that the, the resurrection has already happened. And as he's struggling with all this, it's not like he's where we're at 2,000 years later, Timothy, where Christianity, Christianity is like this huge movement. I mean, there are some believers here and there, but it's not like these churches are made up of powerful people. And even as uh, Paul is writing Second Timothy, some of them are abandoning the faith. They're giving up from a human perspective, this is a crisis moment. Verse 15 of chapter 1, you are aware, Paul says, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And he goes on to name a couple of Timothy's friends. And it's really sad. If you've ever had a friend uh, depart from the faith, and I, I'm sure that Timothy is feeling it. I know Paul's 
feeling it. He's in a, a very humbling situation, Paul, as he's writing this letter, because after all these years of preaching the gospel, he was arrested again somewhere in Asia, and there's no one who came to help him. And then finally, when someone did want to help, and they traveled to all, the, all the way to wherever he was, taken, Rome, I guess, at this point, it was difficult for them to even find him. He was locked up, and he was kept out of circulation. And so Timothy, he has all kinds of reasons he could have given as to why he didn't have much hope that his ministry could make an impact. And yet the thing is, we know, of course, that it did make an impact because we're sitting here. It made the kind of impact that we're talking about a couple thousand years later. We're here in part because of Paul and Timothy. And today I want us to talk about their strategy. How? What did they do to make that kind of impact? Because I think Paul lays it out for us here, at least in part, in the first couple verses of chapter 2. He writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus, which I think is where we need to start if we're going to make a long-term impact. This is a big part of our basic strategy. First, number one, if we want to make the kind of impact uh, that Paul is longing for Timothy to make, we, we need to make sure that we don't make excuses for giving up, but instead are daily finding the strength to persevere by enjoying an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. That's essential, non-negotiable, really. Verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I'm putting those two commands together. Suffer as a good soldier. And it's actually share in suffering. Join me in suffering. As we receive strength from God, be strengthened. We need to jump in with Paul and do the right thing and keep on doing the right thing, even when it's really painful to do it. That's, that's the first step. And then second, we need to emphasize leadership development in a big way. Quoting Paul, verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so this is big picture, really. If Timothy's going to make an impact, if we're going to make an impact, the first thing we need is we have to be made strong. And I'm talking supernaturally strong. You notice how Paul doesn't say to Timothy, be strong, which is interesting to me. He says, be strengthened. So it's like, given the difficulties of ministry in this world, you need to do something for sure. But what you need to do is not quite what you might expect because it's not do something for God first or give something to God. It's receive something from God. This is one of the, the big differences about the church and leadership in the church. It is not about our being strong. It's about God's strength. And so what you need to do is receive the resources you need to keep going from Jesus over and over again. You need to keep going back to Jesus and finding the strength you need not to give up, but to share in suffering. And so it's like, you've got all these obstacles. I know, Timothy, of course I know. But the resources you need to keep going are there in Jesus. So first priority, before you do anything else, as you do everything else, 
Go to Jesus and be strengthened. Instead of looking at what's happening to you and shrinking back and saying, no, I can never be like the Apostle Paul. I'll never be able to handle that suffering. It's too hard if I do the right thing. You need to stop making excuses. Those are excuses. Stop making excuses and go to Jesus because there's grace that you need there to be strengthened. I often think there's uh, two kinds of people to watch out for in ministry. Groups of people as kind of dangerous people. And one uh, is the person who's, who's like, I've got this. I can do this. But the other is the person who's like, we can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. Because the first guy is proud, of course. But the second guy is trickier because he's kind of right. We can't do this. But when it comes to the stuff we're clearly commanded to do in Scripture, we can't do this is an excuse. It's a reality. We can't do this. That is supposed to force us back to Jesus to find our strength in him because he can do this. Look, listen, there is undeserved kindness for Jesus, in Jesus, for sinners. There is real help that he wants to give to those who don't deserve it and who are willing to depend on him. And this is a little difficult to talk about because that's not just an idea, it sounds like it's not just an idea, but it's not an idea, just an idea. It's a reality. There is a person named Jesus who exists, who is the king of the universe, who can empower us to do what we think is impossible. He loves us, and he is alive, and he is committed to his church, and he doesn't just call us to do things, but gives us what we need to do them if we go to him, and we need to go to him. Because the gospel ministry, everything about the gospel ministry that we actually want to see accomplished is impossible for us. And there is going to be a lot of opposition as well as we seek to do it. The Bible tells us to expect persecution, and we have a supernatural enemy who hates us. And so there is no way that we're ever going to be able to do any kind of meaningful gospel ministry long term if we're not willing to suffer and if we're not willing to persevere, and if we're going to keep going, we need to be strong. And the problem is we're not strong in ourselves. And so if we're going to make an impact, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to trust Jesus, that he's good enough to give us the help we need in the future when it seems like what he's calling us to do is painful right now, which is what Paul's been saying to Timothy over and over again throughout chapter 1, actually. If you look back at chapter 1, there are four times where Paul tells Timothy what to do. Verse 6, chapter 1. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God. And verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so there are a lot of commands there, like do not be ashamed or, or suffer or guard the good deposit, but how? Paul's saying, Timothy, you can obey all these commands because God has given you the resources you need. You have the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. You have the power of God. You have the gift of God that was given to you. So it's all there for you to keep going, but you've got to believe that and depend on God and keep going 
Can you do the right thing if you're a Christian? Yes. Yes. But will you do the right thing if you don't do the right thing? No. <laughs> because part of the key to doing the right thing is doing the right thing. Because as you do the right thing, God gives you the strength to do it. It's funny, when we left Africa, some of the people in the church there were uh, a little worried. They were like, Pastor, you're saying we're ready, but we're not sure we're ready. Uh, but we hung in there, and they hung in there, actually. And you know, uh, this time, everyone was saying to me, they were like, we were ready. God, God came through. And I could see the, the way that God had strengthened them. It was like obvious. And part of our problem is we think, and it happens over and over again, no matter where you live, we think it's something about a specific person. That's why good things happen. And sure, God gifts people, but God doesn't need those people. It is about God, not us. So we just keep going. You know, I, I like to read the biographies of great Christians, people who made an impact. And part of the reason uh, I like to read them so much is because uh, my parents didn't let us watch TV on Sunday. So I would uh, have to be in my room while they were taking a nap or something so bored. And there were, these were the books that were around. And I'm glad they did that, I guess, because these books made a big impact on me. And one of my favorites is about a man named William Carey, who you heard of, I'm sure. He was a missionary to India. And by the end of his life, I mean, this man had made an impact. He uh, and his team had translated the Bible into 34 languages. They formed 100 schools. They began 19 mission stations. They printed the first Indian newspaper, apparently. They introduced the concept of a savings bank to assist poor farmers. They helped ban the practice of burning widows whose husband had died. And I'm sure there's more. And this was a man who stopped going to school at age 12 who was rejected when he first went to be ordained as a pastor, who served in India for seven years before seeing his first convert. And years later, uh, people asked William Carey, uh, what was it that caused you to make such an impact? And you know what he said? He says, I can plod. <laughs> I can persevere in any difficult pursuit. To this, I owe everything. By which, if you look at William Carey's life a little more closely, he meant basically what Paul's telling Timothy. He didn't allow his circumstances to cause him to think that God wouldn't be able to help him. And so he just kept going and doing what he knew God had called him to do, even when it was incredibly painful. Which is something I want to learn for myself because I think it's step number one for making a long-term impact here at CBC. I don't think we really need smart people. I don't think we really need important people. I don't think we need rich people, but I do think we need a group of people who trust God and love Jesus enough to keep going and doing the, the, the next right thing, even though they feel inadequate, even though they are inadequate, they know Jesus is adequate. And so they take the next right step, even when it might mean it's gonna be uncomfortable. <laughs> and they're gonna suffer for it, that's first. And then second, we need to make a priority out of leadership development. These are two keys, and this again is verse two. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here's Paul, and he's like, I've got this message from God I've been given, and uh, this gospel is much bigger than me, and it's more important than me, 
and I taught it to you, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, meaning probably you were there as I preached and discipled, and there were all kinds of people around that can testify that I worked as hard as I could so that you could understand the truth. And now, Timothy, it's your job to take what you learned from me and entrust it to others. So take that gospel and put it into their hands. In other words, do with them what I've done with you so that they can go out and do the same with others. Which, and and now we're kind of getting to it in terms of the specific vision here at CBC, is one of the big ways that I think this church can make an impact. It's by identifying, training, and equipping men as strong biblical leaders who we can get behind so that they can go out and identify, train, and equip others to be strong biblical leaders who they can get behind so that they can go out and identify, train, and equip individuals as strong biblical leaders who they can get behind. And and this is important because there's an easy way to get leadership wrong. There are a lot of people who say they're leaders, and uh, they are leaders, I guess, but if you look at the way they're relating to people, they're basically using the people around them in order to advance their thing. So it's about the leader And so they're training, maybe, but the training is basically to advance the cause of the leader. And I'm saying we have to think about this very differently as a church because it's about the gospel. It's about the message and the cause of Christ. And so our goal is not to build up Joshua Mack Ministries for sure, but instead simply to take what God has taught us through the word and put it in the hands of others and equip them and enable them to go out and succeed in doing the same. You know, I was talking to someone recently about our vision as a church, and the the way they kind of thought it worked was as a pastor or as elders, we have this vision that goes all the way down to the smallest details, and we bring it to you, and we say, this is the vision, and you can either get on with it, or uh, I guess you're stuck. But that's not quite how it works, because of course there are like biblical principles and convictions that are non-negotiable. That's God's vision for the church. And there are things that we think about where we are and how we're gifted that we want to help the church move forward in. But at the same time, you have to understand a key part of the vision of a biblical church is coming alongside the people God's given that church and helping them use their gifts for the glory of God. And so part of the vision of the church is finding leaders whom God has gifted and and burdened and helping them do what God's called them to do. If you think of it, basically we want to be a trampoline for the gospel. You know a trampoline. You jump on the ground and you can only go so high. If you're like me, not very high. Very embarrassing to get a picture of myself doing a layup or something. I'm like, are you serious? I felt so high. But not high. And and yet with a trampoline, obviously even I can jump higher. And there are people out there who are trying, but no one's getting behind them and discipling them and mentoring them. And that's what the local church is here for. They start jumping and it's not long until they're able to jump way higher than they ever were before. And I think we have a cool place to do that. One of the things uh, going back to Africa that was so encouraging this time was seeing how the church there had sent out one of the elders and about uh, 30 other people from the church uh, in the year that we were gone to plant a church. And this isn't a big church sending them out. Uh, This was like 150 uh, really financially poor people, but 150 people. And they sent out this elder and 30 other people. And you know that elder, he had been praying and and wanting 
to do that for a long time. And I was kind of holding on to him. I, I think I felt like I needed him. He had a lot of gifts. And, uh, and yet, you know what? He's doing so well. And the church is doing so well. And, and now there's another young man who's been with the church for 12 years and wanting to go back to the village where he grew up, which nobody does, go back from the city to the village. And he's been patient, and he's gotten training. He's finishing his master's in biblical studies, and the church is wanting to send him out. And I don't know how they're going to do it, because in both cases, they, they don't have any resources, really, financially, to do any of this. And that's my point, because the easy part about serving there was you always had men who wanted to be trained, <laughs> but you never had resources. And it was exciting to see what God could do without resources. But God can do the same thing with resources, right? <laughs> We can build a strong trampoline here. We have that opportunity, and it starts with trusting God and stepping out and identifying and training and equipping men who will go out and be able to identify and train and equip others. That's, that's the strategy. That's the basic strategy. But, you know, who exactly are we supposed to be training? Because there are some qualifications, and yet the qualifications are not have every single gift in the world be the next Billy Graham or something, uh, if you know who he is. Those, uh, qual the qualifications are actually kind of simple. First, what, what's needed? They, they need to be able to teach because they're going to be doing that and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And yet you notice Paul doesn't say much more than that. He doesn't say make sure you, you have really funny guys or like uh, they're really interesting or they're just like oh, they grip you for hours. They just need to be able to teach. And then second, the second qualification is just as important, and it's found right before the word men. They need to be faithful. And I really want to stress this one in particular because it's such a key to what we're about. You could uh, translate the word faithful, uh, trustworthy. And so in terms of ministry here at Cornerstone, we're going to go after everybody. Like you can be the biggest joker in the world who's a total flake, and we're going to be loving you, and uh, we're going to be trying to help you grow. That's why we're here. But when it comes to pouring ourselves into men for the purpose of raising up the next generation of spiritual leaders, we're looking for something fairly specific. We're looking for people who have the ability to teach or at least are, are moving in that direction and who have proven that they can be trusted to fulfill the responsibilities God has given them, no matter how small. That's what it means to be faithful. It means demonstrating over time that you can be trusted with more and more responsibilities because of the way you've taken care of your previous ones. And so you're given a small responsibility and you're serious about it, and then you're given another responsibility, maybe a, a little more, and you're serious about it and you're doing well and you're given more. And look, listen, I wanna say this super loudly. We're not, understand, we're not talking about perfection here. He doesn't say entrust this to a perfect man. I, at least I don't, think he says that, right? No, he definitely doesn't say that. Faithful men. It's funny how you have to emphasize different things in different places. So like in Africa, I'd have to say, look, we're not going to be ready to handle a big job uh, if we're not taking care of small jobs. And yet here, I feel like I have to say, this is not perfection that we're talking about. <laughs> this is not perfection. When we talk about handling small jobs and being faithful, we're not talking about never making any mistakes and we're not talking about absolutely always knowing every single thing that you, about how to do everything you're supposed to do. Instead, we're talking about being the kind of person who people can basically count on. So, you know, when it comes to leadership development, we're not wanting you to be five-star at everything. 
We want you be, to be the kind of person who shows up, who's dependable, and who is humble as you do all that. In fact, maybe let me try to get more specific so it's not confusing because we can so easily import worldly ideas of what leadership's supposed to look like back into the church. And I'm afraid sometimes we get things out of whack and we major on the minors and miss what's most important. And so as we look at men to get behind and develop, maybe it would help to think what kind of leader are we specifically praying that God would produce? Like, what do we want to see God, what kind of men do we want to see God make here? And, and there are three qualities specifically that Paul points out as he's talking to Timothy throughout the rest of this chapter. Look for faithful men who are able to teach, and these are the kind of men you want them to become, obviously, because this is the kind of man that Paul wanted Timothy to become. One, first, we want a person who is more concerned about eternal priorities than they are earthly pleasures, which is kind of implied, I think, in Paul's invitation to Timothy in verse 3, to share in suffering, right? Because you're not going to choose to share in suffering unless there's something more important to you than your own personal comfort. Is there anything more important to you than your own personal comfort? Be honest. <laughs> because that is rare nowadays. Because we're living in a culture of kings, or you know, people who think they're kings, where it's normal to make being comfortable a huge priority. And actually, a lot of times you can choose comfort. There's a lot of places in the world you don't have that option, so they kind of give up on it. But here, we can almost always choose comfort. And so we don't even question the choice. In fact, it's so rare, we don't always know what would it look like to actually even make eternity a priority. What does this kind of person look like someone who prioritizes the eternal over their own personal comfort. One, it looks like being a soldier, actually. Paul says in verse 4, he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Be willing to do what's uncomfortable because God's agenda is more important than yours. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're not going to get entangled in civilian pursuits. And so here's a soldier at war, and he knows he has to stay focused, and so he refuses to get entangled. And I, I like this picture because what does he refuse to get entangled by? It's civilian pursuits. So Paul's not only talking about things that are wrong here, which is where my mind might go, but when he says he doesn't get entangled, civilian pursuits aren't necessarily wrong pursuits. They're just not right for a soldier who's at war. And so if you're going to lead, you have to prioritize the eternal. And to do that means you're going to have to say no to certain things that might be distracting. And that takes focus. You're going to have to make choices that help you stay focused on what is important to God. And here in America, that is really hard. That might be one of the biggest challenges we have in raising up future leaders, I think. Because in America, we have so many options to do so many things all the time, which is great. But the problem is you're not infinite. You are a human being. And so anytime you choose to do one thing, you're also choosing not to do another thing. And so you have to make choices. If you are not unlimited, you have to set limits. And as a leader, of course, that doesn't mean you don't enjoy different things, but 
The person who's living for the eternal is working at being focused because ultimately what matters to him most is pleasing God and, and the gospel. It's kind of like if you're a CEO or you're an Olympian, they have to make choices. And to be a Christian leader, you have to make choices. And maybe let me even get a little more specific because I think one choice you have to make might be a little surprising. Because one thing that is needed if you're going to be a spiritual leader is time in God's word and time with God's people. Unrushed time. And there's not a lot of that for some people. There's no margin. Because in, it's normal in Southern California to be doing a million things, like in one day. And a lot of times they're good things. You can't look at any of those things and say they're wrong. I go to work, I go to work out, I take my child to ballet, I then take a class, I then whatever. And you listen to some people's days and weeks, and they're always doing something. They've always got something going on. And that, what they got going on is good. It's funny, we were laughing um, it was a friend who said it, but when we got off the plane after 30 hours of travel, and it was like 2 in the afternoon, I hadn't slept for 30 hours or so, and someone asked me, he who shall not be named, someone asked me, what are you planning to do tonight? And it was just so funny. I was like, what am I planning? <laughs> I am planning to lay on the floor and try to survive until tomorrow. But we are going, we're going, we're going. And I'm saying all that going can make it very difficult to do ministry because you're too tired or you don't have time. People take so much time. If ministry takes one thing, it takes time. And so we're looking for leaders who are going to be willing to say no to some good things because ministry is a priority for them. And they work at making time for people and for God's word. Now, so you don't get the wrong idea, verse 5 gives us another picture. Uh, first, Paul talks about being like a soldier. Being about the eternal means not getting distracted. But then he talks about being like an athlete. And so not getting distracted doesn't mean they don't have drive, these leaders. Because, you know, there are some people who don't get involved in civilian pursuits because they're, like, lazy. They have no drive. And that is not the point. Because the man we're looking for God to produce is going to be like an athlete who wants to win the gold medal, obviously. And so he's driven, it's just that he's careful because he knows, as Paul says, verse 5, that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And this picture works because there is a crown for Christian leaders. That's part of what makes this such a, a privilege. God's got eternal rewards in store for people who are faithful to him. Think about how Paul encourages deacons. I always say if I wasn't going to be an elder, I would really want to be a deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Check out what Paul says to deacons about the kind of reward there is for being a deacon in Christ's church. And this is part of the grace that God shows us in Jesus. He prepares these good works for us. He's like such a kind father. He prepares the good works for us to do, and then he rewards us for those good works. <laughs> and so imagine the, the kind of crown a faithful leader is going to receive when he goes to heaven. And yet there are rules. There's a, a way God wants us to live the Christian life and do ministry. And so there are things a Christian leader can do, and there are things a Christian leader can't do, even though they might seem to work, actually. And so I guess here we're, we're talking really about conviction. We want God to produce men of conviction, biblical conviction, who are willing to do and will are committed to doing the right thing, even when doing the right thing doesn't seem to anyone to be working. 
I remember when I finished seminary, this was a surprise to me. When I um, finished seminary, I kind of thought, because I went to a seminary where there's a huge church, you know, every, it seemed like things were, everything was going well. <laughs> and I kind of thought, you know, if you just go out there and love people and preach, it's going to be uh, just amazing, and everyone's going to love me, and the church is going to grow. And I guess I wasn't listening in seminary very well if I thought that. Um, because it's obvious when you read the Bible, it's always been difficult to, to be someone who's speaking for God. If you think about Noah, uh, or Moses, or Elijah, he's like, I'm the only one. In fact, probably if you want, if you want to talk about a successful prophet, a, a visibly successful prophet in the Old Testament, who, would be, who do you think is the most successful prophet in the Old Testament in terms of numerically or results? It would be the worst prophet, Jonah. <laughs> and then, of course, we go to the New Testament. Jesus got crucified, and Paul, we know what his life is like, even as he writes 2 Timothy. And so we need God to develop leaders who have conviction to do what's right, even when it doesn't seem to be working, because they're taking the long view and living for eternity, and they're not willing to trade the hope of standing before God and receiving glory and honor from him for some comfort and success right now. Tell you, imagine when you stand before God and he rewards you, you're definitely not going to be looking back and thinking, oh, I just wish I had compromised. We need leaders who are, are going to be like a soldier, who want to please their master, who are focused and who are like an athlete wanting to win but refusing to compromise. And then like a farmer who, who works hard, basically in anticipation and faith of what God is going to use that hard work to produce, even when, again, he doesn't seem to be getting any results at first. If you look at verse 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And there's a reward again, the first share of the crops, and yet receiving that reward is going to require patience because you don't always see the crops right away. And so, again, we want to see God produce leaders here at Cornerstone. Leaders, that's a prayer, a goal. We want to be a leadership training factory. And uh, yet, what kind of men are we looking for? Men who are able to teach and who are faithful. And what kind of men do we want them to become? Not necessarily men who are successful at everything. Not necessarily these uh, guys that have great personalities that are so fun to be around. That's fine. But more important, we want the kind of men who work hard at staying focused who are committed to doing what's right when the whole world is telling them to compromise, and who keep planting seeds, keep planting seeds, keep planting seeds because they're living for the eternal more than their own comfort. That's, that's one quality. Uh, a second quality, we want men who care more about truth than they do what other people think. And so this is important to emphasize because the world doesn't put much of a priority on truth, but the church should be different. Truth matters, and so it's great if people like you, of course, but, and this is a hard one, but the, the goal of leadership is not first to have everyone like you and agree with you, because there's something even more important than people being happy with you, and it's truth, which means we need men who are willing to stand up against people and uh, because they're for people, <laughs> and actually at points, tell them they need to stop talking nonsense, really. If you go down to verse 14 of chapter 2, you can see Paul starts talking to Timothy a little more about his specific responsibilities. And so the first verses were kind of general, like suffer, put eternity first, 
Remember the gospel. Remember my life. Be warned, actually, that uh, if you compromise, it's going to have consequences. And now he's getting into what Timothy's going to need to do. And his first responsibility is to stand up against error. Remind them, Paul says, of these things and, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And you know what's a little complicated here is Paul's actually talking about people having spiritual conversations. That's who he's saying he's going to have to charge not to quarrel. And so one of the difficult things about ministry, I think, is that you not only have to stand up against people who are not religious, that's kind of easy, but the problem for many people is that they are religious, and yet they don't know what's good for them spiritually and what's not good. And actually, many people are much more interested in what is not good for them spiritually than they are what actually is. Which, yeah, yeah, I often say, if you really want to have a big church, you know what you do is you find out whatever that culture preaches, what just the general culture preaches, and then you preach that with just some Bible words attached to it. Because we often like to hear what is not true, actually. And so that's why these people here are quarreling about words in verse 14. This is a religious debate, and it's connected back to some things in their culture. And so there's a need for someone who doesn't just accept everything that's said and goes around with his mind turned off, listening to everything and getting involved in every conversation because he knows there are religious conversations that actually do people's spiritual damage. And so he cares enough about people and he cares enough about God to take a stand and risk people getting upset with him and say no, to, to actually charge people, we can't be quarreling about words, which takes courage and discernment because he, it means he has to be able to see the kind of discussions that aren't helpful and what kinds of discussions are and be willing to take a stand, which I know for me personally is one of those things that's really revealing when I'm not thinking straight. Uh, because if you want people to be happy with you, you can just let them say whatever they want to say and affirm it. I mean, people will pay uh, money to someone who does that. People go to school and get like doctorates, so people will pay them money so they can basically affirm what that person says to them. But you start telling people no, that actually doesn't make sense or is unhelpful, and you're pretty much sure, especially here in America, to make people angry, and yet that's part of being a biblical leader. You have to point error. What's out of error? Which, what's dangerous? Because you value truth. That's the point, verse 15, so that you can speak what is actually good for people. Do your best, Paul says to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so he's talking about interpreting scripture accurately. A big part of the job of a, a spiritual leader in the church is studying so that he can speak truth, God's truth, clearly and accurately. I am, whenever someone says to me, I want to be a spiritual leader, I say, do you like to study? And uh, I don't know, again, I should have known more, but I was pretty young. I don't know if I realized before I became a pastor, how much of the job is sitting down in your office and just studying. <laughs> That's part of why we need deacons to help us in so many of the other areas that a church needs to be. But a big part of the work of a pastor is loving God and loving people enough to sit for a long time and keep studying to make sure you're understanding 
what you're reading the way God does because you realize his opinion is the one that matters. And so you want to present yourself to God in a way that he approves of, and that means you're going to be a worker. You work at this, and there needs to be a drive, actually, because uh, many people won't push you. You can kind of say what you want a lot of times because, unfortunately, a lot of people aren't trying to be discerning. It's sad uh, nowadays because you can get away with saying a lot of things as long as you're just nice. Because people tend to value being nice over truth. And yet as a Christian leader, you know that it's fine to be nice. It's really good, actually. But you're going to have to work because there's something more important than just people thinking you're, you're nice. You're going to stand before God, and you're supposed to be his messenger. I was uh, somewhere last week, and it was, I was so encouraged because it was a question-and-answer session at the church, which was different. And people were asking all kinds of questions and some really tough ones uh, to the pastor. And he clearly knew his, his scripture, and it was beautiful. And how did that happen, where he could answer those questions and quote scripture after scripture? I'll tell you how it happened, at least one part of it. Work. He must have worked. It's not magic. It's work. And if we're going to be leaders who honor God, that's a requirement. We don't have to be the smartest men, but we want to be the kind of men who care so much about God's approval and the truth that they're willing to confront people. We're willing to confront people when they're going the wrong way, and we're willing to sit in our study with our Bible open for a long time, thinking deeply about what it means and how to explain it in a way that others can understand. That's the kind of men we're praying God will develop. Again, not perfect men. Not amazing men, but faithful men. Because these are the kind of men we think God can use to, to make an eternal impact. Men who prize the eternal reward over their own comfort and who love the truth and who are studying God's word and taking stands, not because they want to look important, but because they want to honor God and because they, they want to be holy. And I wish we had time for this, but if you look at verses 20 through 26, Paul makes clear one of the reasons people are drawn to false teaching is because of problems in their own character. And so he tells Timothy, not only does he need to take a stand against false teaching, he needs to make sure that he's dealing with his own heart so that he's not the kind of person who even has a taste for it. Verse 20, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable, and we want to be an honorable vessel that Jesus uses for good. How do we become those kinds of people? Verse 21, we work. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he will be a vessel for an honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And what does that cleansing look like? Verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It looks like running away from sinful desires. It looks like running after what's right with others who love Jesus. And even though I've been talking for a long time now, I want to emphasize this because uh, sometimes it can be tempting to want to be a spiritual leader and get involved in teaching others while not being serious about the process of becoming holy yourself which is maybe not the first problem we have at Cornerstone Bible Church right now. I think our problem might be more distraction and being afraid to step up. And so we're kind of working on having people want to exercise spiritual leadership. But if the Lord does a work here and leadership becomes something that people want, 
then it's likely that this is going to become a problem where people want the position but aren't serious about holiness. That was a problem in Africa, a huge problem. And I remember someone saying once, what kind of leaders do we want? We want leaders who are gifted and godly, but first of all, and most of all, godly. Not again, necessarily men who are good at everything. We're not looking for superhumans. And I'm not just saying that to the men who want to be leaders. I'm also saying that to you as a church. Your leaders are not superhumans. They are inadequate men who are seeking to serve you because we need leaders. And so as inadequate men, they are trusting God that he will give them the resources they need to lead well even though they don't have them. And you need to know that if you're going to seek to be a leader. We're not looking for men who always know the right thing to say, who are always able to answer every question. These are men who are going to make spelling mistakes, you know. They're going to forget things. They're going to be inadequate in a lot of ways. When we say we want to raise up leaders, we're not talking about a lot of things that the world is looking for or talking about. We're looking for men who have some ability to teach and who are faithful. And we're not wanting them to become a lot of things the world wants in a leader, at least not primarily. Most of all, we want them to be living for eternity, to love the truth, and to not just want to use the Bible to sound important, but to really want to be holy and working at being holy. And we want to get behind men like that with all our might, doing what we can to help them use their gifts to the best of their ability so they, they can take what they've learned and train other faithful men who will go out and do the same. That's, that's our strategy. And that's why we're talking about leadership the next couple weeks. And I, I know it's kind of simple, but I think if we stick to it and we're willing to keep going, even when it's hard, receiving the strength we need to persevere from God, we're going to be surprised in the years ahead at all the ways that God uses this church to make an impact across the world for the cause of Christ because of God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, uh, may the gospel, what we believe, change us all the way down to the the way we think about leadership. And Lord God, you know, uh, none of us have the strength to do anything that you've called us to do in ourselves naturally. But we're not by ourselves. We have, we're united to you, Jesus. We have these promises, and you are alive. You're the risen Savior, and you love your church. And so we come to you and ask. We put our hand in yours, and we ask you to lead us and make us the kind of church that you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus, your name. Amen.